Hello and welcome to this Endo Life. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an Endo Warrior and Endo Health Coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Please consult your medical practitioner before making any nutritional changes or bringing in any supplements. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them I don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, and you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a flare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that day, daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down and it also ensures that you have healthy balanced hormones. It's, it's really, really key. And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balancing plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is 
built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, blood sugar is a huge piece to managing your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and period support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. So before I start this episode, I just wanted to give you all a heads up that I am about to run two free workshops, creating a roadmap for endobelly healing. So this workshop is for those of you who are struggling with overwhelm, or you just don't know where to start with managing the endobelly and it's really affecting your life. In this two-hour workshop, I'm going to show you how to overcome endobelly information overwhelm. I'm going to help you to identify your core endobelly challenges and symptoms so that we can kind of get to the root of the problem. I'm going to teach you the first, second, and third line therapies for endobelly healing that I go through with my clients. So these are just basically protocols that we go through, kind of basic, intermediate, and advanced, essentially. And then at the end of the workshop, I'm going to empower you to set one to three goals and next steps so that you can actually get started with managing your endo belly after the call. So I'm holding this workshop on two different dates, Tuesday, May the 24th at 7pm British summertime and Thursday, May 26th, 7pm British summertime. So the link to sign up and to register is in the show notes. You don't have to attend live. It is better to attend live because we're going to have Um, quite an extensive Q&A at the end where you get to ask me questions about your own endobelly situation. Uh, But you'll receive the replay the next day. So you can still, you know, watch it back. However, you do have to be signed up to get the replay. So you can sign up, book your place. If you attend live or if you don't attend live, you're still going to get the recording. So I hope to see some of you there. So this episode is a special episode sharing a Q&A recording from my recent endobelly challenge. So over 150 people took part in the four-week free challenge and each week they received an email from me with some education on the endobelly and what causes it and, and how to treat it. 
And then we also had a related action step each week to help them minimize the symptoms and begin treating the root causes. And at the end of the challenge, to celebrate and kind of wrap up nicely, I held a private Q&A for anyone who wanted to ask questions about their experience with the challenge, their own endobility issues, or just endometriosis itself. So today, I'm sharing some of these questions and my answers. In some cases, I've blanked out and removed the names where necessary. Here are some of the questions that we're going to answer today. Why does my endobelly and pain get worse at night and in the morning when I wake up? If I'm on hormonal treatment, does it change what type of natural and holistic treatment I use and will it be less effective? Why do I still have endobelly after a full hysterectomy? And I just want to give you guys a quick disclaimer here. In the context of this question, the surgery was fairly recent and the surgery was very successful and the surgeon was very sure that they excised all of the current endometriosis. Um, now, that isn't a cure for the endometriosis. So a full hysterectomy is not a cure for endometriosis. The endometriosis can still grow after a full hysterectomy, especially if some has been left behind. Now we do know that some surgeons miss endometriosis, some lesions, some aren't as skilled. So there is always that possibility. But in this situation, from what I gathered from the email that was pre-submitted and the conversation I was having, with the um, girl on the call, it had been a very, very successful surgery. So we were looking at what else could it have been. So I just kind of wanted to make that clear. If you are listening and you're like, oh, I had a full hysterectomy, it can't be endometriosis related. It can still be endometriosis related. But in this situation, um, I suspected some other things were going on. You'll understand when you hear it. I just wanted to make that quick disclaimer. Other questions were, if I eat an anti-inflammatory diet, will it shrink my endo? How do I treat SIBO? How do I prepare for surgery and get the best results from it? Any pre or post op tips? What are the pros and cons of surgery? And can you treat endometriosis without surgery? Please remember, of course, that everyone's experience of endometriosis is unique. And in regards to surgery and the decision to have or not have surgery, that should be made in partnership with your surgeon and medical team. The information that I'm sharing in regards to surgery in this episode is just for informational purposes only. And of course, these are just very quick fire questions. I don't know these people individually. I'm not working with them one-on-one. -on -one. So I'm giving very generalized information with what I've, you know, with the information that they've been able to give me in a very short amount of time. So everyone's experience will be different. We, unfortunately, there's no guarantees of endometriosis. So what I'm providing in this call is information to help, to give people informed choices. Um, and so they're aware of all of their options and all of the treatment options. It doesn't mean that every suggestion I give is going to 100% work. It just means that these are options they can try. Um, and everyone may respond differently. So please keep that in mind. So with that all being said, I hope that you find this episode informational and helpful. And I do think it's going to be relatable for a lot of you. So hence why I'm sharing it. So um, you're on the hormone Visane, um, which isn't perfect, but gives you a bit more of a quality of life. Um, do any of your recommendations change knowing that I'm on a hormone that stops me from ovulating? Um, so I'm going to answer that bit first and then I'll move into the, the next part of the question. 
So in terms of like the challenge, what we went through in terms of the challenge, we had the massage on week one, we had the breathing on week two, the chewing on week three and the spices on week four, all of those things to help with gut health. It's not going to change at all with the um, whether you you know whether someone's on the pill, whether someone is an induced menopause, um, if someone is taking the same, if someone has had a hysterectomy, it's literally not going to make any difference. Um, and in fact, in in some cases, it's actually going to be more helpful because when we are on hormonal um, hormonal treatments, depending on the type of treatment, especially the pill, for example they can um, change the way that our gut responds um, and the way that our gut is kind of composed of certain bacteria and how inflamed it is. So actually all of the support that we're given to your gut is going to be really beneficial. Um, so that's not going to change at all. In terms of the like strategies that I use, because you go on to say, would it still benefit me to do your live and thrive course? So in terms of like the um, recommendations that I make in the course, but in general, right, the course is based on what I generally recommend or not recommend the information I provide people with. It doesn't really change at all because the only thing that changes with the, um, the hormones is that, you know, you're not ovulating. So we're not, we're not necessarily like cycle sinking. Um, and whilst, you know, we're not cycle sinking, we're not necessarily eating for your cycle. We're not tracking your cycle, but in terms of things that can help support healthy hormones, like liver detoxification that we do, gut health, blood sugar management, they all have other benefits for endometriosis. So actually they're still completely relevant. Most of what I take people through, they all seem, they all work on different levels. So inflammation, anti-inflammatory eating is like a core strategy. That's the first module. Um, that is going to be lowering inflammation, supporting you with fatigue, um, giving your body the energy it needs to support. Oh, I'm going to let someone in. Okay, great. Hi, Christy. I'm, um, let me just make sure. Okay, thank you so much for joining us, Christy. I hope I've got your name right. I can see C. Christy. So maybe your first name isn't Christy. Um, I'm just answering uh, Katie's question. So Christy, I don't believe I've got a question from you sent in, but if you have submitted a question, just type it in the chat. If you have any questions at the end of this call um, that I can fit in on top of the submitted questions, then you can feel feel free to just post it in the group. But let me know if I, you know, if you have submitted a question in case I've missed it. Um, so yeah, with the inf um, the inflammation, that's going to be helping to support healthy gut, to lower pain signals, to support brain health. Um, it's going to give you the energy you need with fatigue. It's going to support your immune system. It's going to help with so many different things. Blood sugar, exactly the same, even though it plays such a big role in hormonal health, blood sugar is a leading contributor to inflammation. Um, it's also going to affect the way that your gut works. It's going to affect your liver health as well. So like having an inflamed, uh, 
high blood sugar spikes can actually impact the inflammation in your gut and the composition of your gut. So that's really important uh, for managing endometriosis because we know that um, with people with endometriosis, they tend to have higher levels of inflammation in their gut. They tend to have um, bacterial dysbiosis, which means it's an imbalance in the gut. So trying to look after the gut as much as possible is going to be really helpful. Um, fatigue is a massive one with blood sugar imbalances and brain fog. So that's going to be helpful. Um, gut health, as I said, gut health, I mean, 60 to 70 percent of your immune system is in and around the gut. So working on gut health in modules three and four are key to managing endometriosis because a lot, not all of it, but a lot of the source of your pain with endometriosis is inflammation. And then we also know that there are gut problems with endometriosis. Um, so calming that down is going to be really helpful for your like overall comfort, not just with the pelvic pain, but abdom abdominal pain or IBS symptoms, which a lot of people with endometriosis get. The endo belly as well, you know, in my training and research from the amount of people that I've worked with, the type of training that I've done, I would argue that yes, the endo belly does come to a degree from the inflammation related to endometriosis, but more so it's coming from gut dysbiosis and SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which the current research is estimating affects 80% of people with endometriosis. Um, also things like adhesions can affect the way that your intestines sort of move and trap gases, so that can create bloating. Um, hormonal imbalances can create bloating too. So not that that bit's relevant to you, but gut health will play a key role in managing that endo belly. Additionally, if your gut isn't working very well, then you're not going to be absorbing nutrients properly. So that can contribute to things like fatigue and brain fog. Um, so that's obviously going to be really helpful. The detoxification module that's going to be helpful for moving like your hormonal um, treatments out of your body and making sure you don't get a buildup, but also just making sure that when you are having these inflammatory flares, like inflammation is caused by different immune cells in your body. And we want that to be clear and out of your body. We want to be making sure that you're not getting a buildup of these inflammatory immune cells um, and that you're not getting a buildup of everyday toxins in your environment, because it's not just about how much natural estrogen do you have in your body. Um, it's about how much of your environment is affecting your hormone levels. So there are like fake hormones in the environment known as xenoestrogens. And, or I think in America, they pronounce it xenoestrogens. Um, and so they can build up in your body. And so supporting your detoxification processes, so your lymphatic drainage system, your liver, um, your skin, your gut, those are all going to help to clear out these endocrine toxins that actually can contribute to endometriosis and contribute to hormonal imbalances. Um, so that's going to be really relevant to you as well. I also go through pain signals. So the way that your brain processes pain and the way that the brain changes once it's been in chronic pain for a long period of time, that's obviously going to be relevant as well. We go through HP axis dysfunction, which is a leading cause of chronic fatigue and brain fog and people with endometriosis. So that's obviously going to be relevant if you struggle with fatigue or brain fog. And so really the only one, I'm just trying to make sure I haven't missed something there. Oh, structural issues. Um, so structural issues like adhesions, pelvic and pelvic floor dysfunction um, and scar tissue from surgery, that 
I would imagine is relevant to you as well. I think the estimate is about 70% 70 of people with endometriosis have a tight pelvic floor um, and 50 to 100% of people who have abdominal surgery go on to get adhesions. So all of those can really contribute to pain, but also cause further problems down the line, like interstitial cystitis, which is essentially bladder pain, bladder frequency, bladder urgency, but also SIBO as well. All of these things that we know affect people with endometriosis. So it's really important to work on those things too. And then you have the hormone cycle sinking piece, which is towards the end. Um, that's not necessarily going to be relevant to you now, but might be relevant to you in the future. Um, I'm trying to make sure that I haven't missed anything there. There are 10 modules in total, um, but I think I've covered I've covered them all. Um, so oh, let me just let someone in. Okay, great. Um, okay. Um, hi to, I'm not sure who's just joined. It says iPhone, but type in the chat and let me know um, your name and welcome. I'm in the middle of ans um, answering a question at the moment. Um, but if you've submitted a question, um, just let me know to make sure that I get to you. And if you haven't submitted a question, once I've gone through the submitted questions, feel free to post in a question in the chat at the end. And if I finish all the submitted questions, I'll answer that. Um, Christy, it is Christy, right? Um, just because I can see, see Christy. I don't know if Christy is your surname. Um, my question is what treatment you recommend for SIBO? I will get to that um, towards the end, absolutely. It's like my second favorite subject to talk about after endo. Um, so Katie, those are like the main uh, components of the course. Um, I really feel like I'm missing one. All right, let me just make sure that I'm not missing one. I'm just gonna let someone else in the call. I'm gonna let Anna in. just join in so just give me two seconds okay perfect hi Anna I'm just in the middle of answering um someone's question so I will please post in the chat if you have a question or if you've submitted a question and I'll get around to yours um all right, so let me just read out to you, Katie, the name of the modules in the course. Okay, so module one is the role of inflammation and anti-inflammatory nutrition. Module two is blood sugar, endo and hormones. Module three is endo in the gut part one. Module four is endo in the gut part two. Module five is hormones, toxic burden, and then and the detoxification pathways. Module six is circadian rhythm, sleep, and HP axis dysfunction. That's the one that affects your brain fog and fatigue. Module seven is structural support and pain signals. Module eight is hormones and cycle syncing. And then we have a bonus module, which is supplements for endo, which is going to be relevant to anyone no matter what treatment they're doing and module 10 is a bonus module on understanding SIBO treatment so those are the modules um so I do think that it's still relevant to you 
if it feels something that's you know right for you to do um, however I'm not running the course until autumn so probably about September um, I do have the endo belly course coming out um, towards the end of May uh, it starts in June I'm not sure if that's you know, going to be more relevant to you. It's specifically a deep dive into the endo belly and healing that. Um, but the Live and Thrive course is coming out in September. Um, uh, I'm just, let me quickly read out this question so that people understand. So would it still benefit me from doing, would it still benefit me doing your Live and Thrive course? When will that be running again? And you would love some more information included in the price. So Obviously, you've got a breakdown of the modules. Now, originally, the course was delivered with one module a week, and then I would have a Q&A every week as well. So like a Q&A like I'm doing right now. Um, and that would be an hour long Q&A. There's a Facebook group as well. And you get like handouts and free downloads. Like there's lots of freebies like cookbooks and things like that. So that is how I've been doing it. However, I am considering changing the format of the course and I haven't decided on that yet. And that's going to probably affect the price. So at present, if I keep it like that, the course will be priced at 350 pounds for the full price. That's like a 10 week, you know, 10 week program. Um, but there will be an early bird discount period, which will probably be about 70 or hundred pounds off. However, I am considering doing this in a much longer format. Uh, because there is a lot of information. So I'm actually considering potentially making this a eight to 10 month long course with one module a month. So people have like the time to go through the modules because the modules are two to three hours long. Um, and then a Q&A call, you know, once you've gone through that module. So maybe the module is at the start of the month, and the Q&A call is at the end of the month. Um, and so you end up having the support from me in the Facebook group um, and just generally for a lot longer and the course is a slower pace but you get the time to do a deeper dive and implement those changes in real time rather than kind of going through it in 10 weeks and then sort of continuing to have to make changes on your own afterwards I don't know if that sounds better or worse I'd be really interested in oh okay great um I need to ask my past course students to see what they think, but really Live and Thrive is like my signature program, which is a huge deep dive. And just being, just being someone who lives with endometriosis myself, I feel like it would be better to go at a slower pace and to have that time to really digest the information and to get the support in real time as you're making changes. So it does mean it's a longer commitment for people, um, but maybe that gives people the chance to be like, hmm, am I ready for this type of commitment? Whereas the Live and Thrive Foundations course, which I'm currently delivering at the moment, it's, it's literally ending um, tomorrow. That is a shorter course with just four modules and then two bonuses. Um, and that's delivered every other week. And that's for people who aren't quite ready for a deep dive, but um, it gives them the foundations, the core foundations that are going to make really pivotal changes for them. So that's like, you know, shorter course, but still like fairly well paced. And then the endo belly course is eight weeks long, I think, um, and was originally delivered once a week. But I'm probably going to move that to twice, uh, twice a month. So once every other week. Um, 
So the Live and Thrive sort of long course, signature course, is like my deeper dive, which gives me that opportunity to do it over eight months or 10 months with you guys. So if I am going to do that, that is obviously going to be taking much more of my time to deliver it. So it's probably going to be more expensive than it stands at the moment. I mean, if you think about it's three hours of content or two to three hours of content plus an hour of calls with me. So you're getting about four hours um, of content and then all of the sort of admin and support on the top of that. I don't know how much it's going to be priced at the moment. I imagine it's probably going to be in the region of 500 ish pounds, somewhere like that. Um, so, so it's probably going to average around, you know, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I don't know if I'm going to go ahead with that idea. We'll see. Um, I'm going to be speaking to two different people who've done the course before. Um, your next question is, I also have my worst pain in the middle of the night slash first thing in the morning, always after sleeping. Is this common? Is there anything specific to help with this? So Katie, this isn't common. It's actually really unusual and interesting, except for I will say that my period tends to come at night. I used to, it doesn't anymore actually. Um, and I have clients who periods come at night and I think there is a reason for that, but I, right now I can't remember for the life of me what that is. We do tend to ovulate overnight. That tends to happen more, at least the ovulation process gets started overnight. Um, but obviously you're on hormones. So this isn't, this isn't relevant to that. This is to do with your pain. Um, can you let me know, Katie, is this pain like pelvic endo pain or is it abdominal pain or is it a different type of pain? It's, I would say it's abdominal. It's like definitely lower abdominal. Like it feels like always every single time it's like my left ovary. Like I can almost put my finger on it, but my whole belly blows right up and yeah, like I could be fine now that I'm on this hormone, like I'll be fine all day long, but yeah, I'll wake up in the middle of the night or as soon as I wake up in the morning, that's always when I'm the most bloated and the most in pain in my abdomen. Okay. Um, and do you have any, um, scars from your surgery? I've never had surgery okay. actually. Um, I only got put on this hormone a few months ago. Um, before that, it was basically two years of, um, I was on a less my whole life, like birth control. And I didn't even know I had endo until two years ago when I went to get a uh, IUD. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I put the IUD in, um, I was basically out of commission for two years. I couldn't, if I didn't even figure out till a year and a half in that I probably had endometriosis. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's always been, no matter if like I'm going through a really painful time or just medium pain, it's always been the worst in the middle of the night and first thing in the morning, like when I'm lying down, it seems like. Okay. Do you have, so obviously the like official way to diagnose endometriosis is um, via laparosco uh, a laparoscopy. Um, mm -hmm. I was there think in Europe, they might have just changed that to if you see endometriomas on the scan, they can confirm it that way. I think it's just changed, but there's a little bit of controversy around that. How was yours diagnosed? So I guess technically, I don't know for sure that I have endo because it never has been officially seen. I've had um, MRIs and ultrasounds and they all look perfectly normal. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, but the doctor felt that you should wow. go. Yeah, I saw a whole bunch of different doctors and no one really could help. And then um, finally, one gynecologist, I said to her, I think I have endo. And she was like, yeah, sounds like it. I'll put you on Vizan. Um, and Vizan was the only thing that helped me. Okay. Um, so I can't really comment too much on like the Vizan bit because... I'm not licensed to actually do mm-hmm. education, not being a doctor. Um, but um, what was I going to say in regards to that? Um, so they don't know if you have an endometrioma on that left ovary. There doesn't seem to be evidence of that. It doesn't know. Like I've had, like they've seen cysts sometimes on my ultrasounds, but then sometimes it's not there. So yeah. Um. Do you sleep on your left side? Um, no. Okay. Um, so a couple of things that I was thinking about. Um, now, of course, like there's this caveat that maybe you don't have endo, but of course, like your symptoms really correlate everything that you sent to me in the email. Um, but a couple of things that I'm thinking So number one is that this could be um, gut related after dinner. um, And that is not dismissing that it could be related to your endometriosis. This could be affecting the endometriosis because when the gut becomes irritated and inflamed, the pelvis tends to become irritated and inflamed. And if you look at a um, diagram, kind of like a cross-section, that's the word, a cross-section of the gut and the pelvis you'll see that the intestines are almost almost like sitting on top of like the uterus um and so you end up having you know inflammation kind of spill it almost like spilling over so if you're eating something that's irritating your gut that could be affecting it so then you're you know you're getting irritated you're then sleeping with that now in the case of something like SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, um, which is when we have bacteria in the small intestine rather than the large intestine, so you're supposed to have bacteria in your large intestine. You're only ha- supposed to have a very small amount of um, bacteria in your small intestine. When we get this overgrowth, um, we get a lot of symptoms like bloating, IBS symptoms, pain in the abdomen, pain in the pelvic region, um, gas, etc. Now, you might not get all of those symptoms. You might just get one or two. But it is very common in our community. At the moment, the research is estimating it about 80% of people with endo, um, which is why I'm specialized in it. Almost every single person that comes to me, we end up doing a test and they have SIBO. Um, Now, that's not saying you have SIBO. There might be gut dysbiosis, which is just a bacterial imbalance that needs a little bit of support or just your, your gut just needs generally is just a bit sensitive and needs some support at the moment but if it is SIBO or a bacterial imbalance especially with SIBO a signature sort of sign is that the bloating gets worse over the course of the day or at night and I actually have a client who she would wake up in excruciating pain in the night and in the morning, because her bloating, her endo belly was so big and it was so painful because she was just so, you know, so bloated from her SIBO. 
And so that that really rings a bell. That was her worst time, like during the night and in the morning. Um, so this is that's something to consider because with SIBO, um, there are a lot of foods that do irritate SIBO. That doesn't mean to say you have to go on a really, really strict diet. I think first we need you could look at very simple gut healing options, but it's just something to consider. Um, it could also be that maybe you're eating some foods that are more inflammatory and not agreeing with you personally. So an anti-inflammatory diet is gonna look different for everyone um, and it doesn't have to be super strict. Um, but there might be something that you're eating on a regular basis that's irritating you or the type of diet you're eating. Also spikes in blood sugar. So if you're if your meal is spiking your blood sugar, that raises inflammation and then you're going to bed on that, that could be creating this like flare of inflammation overnight. So that's that's kind of this sort of dinner related question. Uh, yeah, dinner related sort of theme there. <coughs> and then, <coughs> excuse me, the other thing that I'm considering, I don't know if this would cause the symptoms you're experiencing. I don't have a lot of experience with this, but some people have a tilted uterus. Um, if you were, you know, if you were having a natural cycle, we'd probably know a little bit more because people who have a tilted uterus tend to get a lot of um, pain and difficulties with their period and a lot of brown blood. But a tilted uterus can cause a lot of discomfort and pain. And I'm wondering if when you're like asleep and you're lying down, that could be affecting it in some way and causing you more pain. There is a sort of myth that tilted uterus doesn't cause pain, but in all of my training, we found that it does. Um, if you do have a tilted uterus, firstly, it can be checked by um, someone who does like womb massage, abdominal massage, someone who is versed in, you know, um, endometriosis and um, reproductive health and they can actually support that and I don't know if they can reverse the tilted uterus but they can certainly help it um, with particular massages. Um, the other thing is if it's coming if the pain is coming in the morning, now you're saying it's coming at night, if it does come in the morning, sometimes movement with SIBO, like even just sitting up, I had a client who had really bad um, SIBO and endo belly, and if she lies down, it was fine, but as soon as she sat up, she'd just start expanding and get excruciating pain. So she spent a lot of her life until we worked together, just horizontal. Um, so that's something to consider. Um, there's also like, are you very stressed about living, having lived with this pain and these symptoms for a very long time? Because what can happen is the brain learns that the morning or the night is unsafe and it actually, it lowers your tolerance and perpetuates the cycle. Um, this is something we dive into in the course is this pain signal kind of um, and chronic pain cycle. Um, and I also cover that in a podcast episode as well. I think it's called Your Brain on Chronic Pain. Um, and how are you sleeping as well? Like, do you struggle to sleep? Because sleep lowers inflammation and lack of sleep causes an increase in inflammation. And actually, it actually causes an increase in pain signals and sensitivity to pain. So if you're getting very stressed in the night um, and you're not getting much sleep, that could be raising your pain signals. Additionally, um, cortisol, if you're getting stressed, as cortisol goes up, your pain signals can increase too. So 
I don't know the exact answer here, but those are some things to explore. Um, my gut feeling is that, uh, yeah, okay, another option, another consideration is you might have adhesions from the endometriosis that are sticking together the organs in your pelvis and sticking them to the ovary, or maybe your ovary is stuck to the pelvic wall or something like that. If that is the case, then lying down might be causing the organs to move because organs move slightly. If you're lying down, it might be creating a position that's putting a lot of weight and pressure on the adhesion and causing some spasming and pain. So that could be something that's happening as well. If you had had surgery and you had the you know scars from surgery, I'd be like, that is a much stronger contender, but we don't know because adhesions form from surgery, but adhesions form from endometriosis too. So um, that could be playing a, a role there. So in terms of like tips, we, obviously we don't know exactly what's behind it, but doing something like our Vigo massage before bed or the I love you massage before bed. So that's going to basically help to relax the muscles and the intestines and also the pelvic area. Um, if you wanted to do something like our Vigo, you need to learn that from a practitioner. It's just a one-off session and they'll teach you how to do it. Um, I work with Tara Ghosh. Um, so she I've got an interview with her on the podcast. You can just get in touch and book in a session with her. She works with people all over the world. Um, so you could try that. The I Love You Massage is just a free online massage on YouTube. Um, it is, I think I linked it. Yeah, it's in, it's in the um, challenge. So you can have a look at that. Um, a magnesium bath or using a magnesium spray. So like an Epsom salt bath. Um, 500 to 600 grams has been shown to be the most effective amount. Um, before bed is gonna help to relax the muscles. So if there's anything going on that's like tension or tightness, um, that should help to relax some of the muscles. Magnesium also reduces inflammation and pain too. So that could be really helpful. If you don't have a bathtub, then what I would recommend is getting a magnesium oil spray and spraying it on your abdomen before bed or when you wake up when you're in pain just spray it on wherever it hurts um, and that's going to relax the cramping um you could try taking uh, a couple of anti-inflammatory supplements before beds so like quercetin or curcumin um, as part of your like supplement regime um a ginger tea not right before bed because then you might start waking up needing a wee but um you know an hour or two hours after dinner ginger actually helps to um basically push gases and food down the digestive tract now we don't want that to happen too early on in the digestion process because then you're just not going to be absorbing your nutrients but you know ideally two hours but it really depends after your meal but it really depends on what time you eat dinner what time you go to bed but if you move it to um, you know, if you if it was just an hour after dinner, I think that should be okay. Um, so a ginger tea is just going to help if you are accumulating gas um, in that in the abdomen, and that's putting pressure on the endometriosis, on the ovary, um, or on the intestines. Then that can, can help release some of that pressure. Um, having a blood sugar balancing meal. I have lots of episodes on the podcast on blood sugar balancing. Those articles, you can just Google my name and blood sugar. Um, and trying to adopt like an anti-inflammatory dinner that you feel, okay, I don't personally react to that, could be helpful as well. Um, 
there's a lot of different things to try there. I would just try one or two in the beginning and the ones that are like the lowest hanging fruit, what's the easiest thing for you to try to begin making some changes? Like don't try, don't try to go for one that you feel is like, okay, that's a bit of a stretch for me. Start with the easiest changes first. Um, I really hope that's helped. Obviously, it's always tricky with these kind of calls and I'm not working with someone one-to-one over a long period of time just to try and answer as much as I can in, in a short amount of time. But I hope that some of those have helped you. Um, I'm just going to take a sip of water. I'm going to move on to Rachel's um, Rachel's question. So let me just pull up Rachel's question. Oh, great, Katie. Okay, that's great. That's great news. Um, hopefully they start to bring you some relief. I Sorry, do you know what, Katie? I thought I wrote this down, but maybe I didn't. I was going to get assessed by a physiotherapist, pelvic floor physiotherapist, or a visceral manipulation therapist and see if they can assess you and feel for any adhesions. And then they can do some work on you because you'll be able to do a certain amount on your own with our Vigo massage, but not it's, it's not going to be it's not going to be strong enough if there are some significant adhesions there um and obviously if uh surgery is something that you're interested in doing and that could be helpful that could be a route worth exploring but there are you know there are pros and cons of having surgery depending on the type of endometriosis that you have Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. Okay, so Rachel, I was diagnosed with endometriosis. Rachel, you're not on here, are you? I just want to make sure that it doesn't look like it from the names on here. Um, So you were diagnosed with endometriosis and adenomyosis in late 2020, and you had a hysterectomy in January of 2021. While the crippling pain went away after surgery, the bloating and gas issues have continued and almost gotten worse. The gynae specialist that did the surgery for me was wonderful and said at the start, from the start, that it wouldn't fix the bloating and distension problems I was having because he feels they aren't related. After surgery, he confirmed that he was able to excise all the endo he found, and because none of it was in my GI tract, track the issue I'm still having, the issues I'm still having aren't endo related. The GI specialist I see keeps testing me for everything GI related under the sun and treated me for IBS, but nothing is working and all screening tests come back completely normal. I feel like my symptoms line up exactly with SIBO and endo belly, but both specialists keep assuring me that I'm wrong. Knowing that he removed the endo he found, knowing that he removed the endo that I found, that he found and that none was in my GI tract at, at all, can it still be SIBO slash endo belly related in your experience or opinion? Um, so just for context to anyone who's listening I actually replied and I wanted to know uh, whether the doctors that Rachel saw were on the NHS and did they do a zebra breath test I'm going to kind of 
read out her reply and then answer her question. Um, so um, it's not in the NHS, I'm just summarizing because I don't want to say where Rachel lives. Um, when I asked about testing for SIBO with both my primary doctor and the GI specialist, they both told me that the hospital doesn't test for it. The GI specialist did have me try a stomach antibiotic for two weeks. I can't remember the name of it, but I feel like it was the one you talked about in one of the podcasts. This was before my hysterectomy and it didn't help the pain at all, so we didn't pursue it further. After the pain was gone, we tried it again, but I'm not convinced after listening to your to some of your podcasts that I was using the meds correctly for a SIBO treatment. It also took me forever to get insurance to approve them. Yeah, it does. <laughs> As I listen to you describe symptoms of SIBO, it's like you were taking notes at one of my appointment, at one of my appointments. I get extreme bloating, which is my most frustrating complaint, fatigue, nausea after eating, burping, and passing gas frequently within 30 to 60 minutes of eating anything. I take vitamin B and D supplements because I'm low on those. I have severe muscle and joint tightness and pain that we can't get figured out, even with my weekly deep tissue, mass tissue massages. And I get eye socket inflammation. That I'm on steroids for currently, which are causing swelling in my hands, arms, legs, and feet. I don't have problems with constipation or diarrhea generally. I've just been at a loss for what to do next. My primary doctor referred me to rheumatology for the muscle problems I'm having, but they can't see me until mid-July. The GI stuff they feel is a separate issue. I'd appreciate any guidance that you have. Okay, so Rachel, lots going on here. Um, I am quite certain that you probably have significant scar tissue from the hysterectomy. Um, I can't remember the stat because there are two stats, but it's astounding. It's something like 80 to 100% of people who have um, significant abdominal surgery will get adhesions. So if it's just like keyhole, I think it's 50 to 100%. And then if it's, if it's like, you know, um, more extensive surgery, I can't think of the, the word, but um, not keyhole where they're literally, you know, cutting you open, that's something like, 80 to 100 percent or 90 to 100 percent it's crazy um so and if anyone's watching this back and they're like i don't know what adhesions are adhesions are like internal scar tissue um they are made of collagen so they don't show up on scans you can't see them um and they wrap around organs or wounds or knit together like areas that need healing um like elastic bands or like webbing that you know like spider-man shoots out the webbing from his hands it look that's what it looks like um and they are incredibly incredibly strong and they put an enormous amount of pressure on organs and muscles and unfortunately they do serve a purpose when we're healing from infection or inflammation or surgery they tend to go too far they tend to um, continue to grow and they tend to stick to things that they didn't need to stick to and really, really pull um, on organs. So when you have this scar tissue, what it can do is affect the way that the intestines work. So there is something called the migrating motor complex, which I'm sure you know about because you've listened to my podcasts. And this is a wave-like motion that travels through the small intestine and it clears out bacteria and old food debris um, after a meal. 
It doesn't happen during a meal. It is turned off for two hours after a meal and it kicks in two hours from, from that point. Um, and what can happen is when we have adhesions, they can be distorting. They don't even necessarily have to be pulling on, they don't necessarily have to be stuck on the um, intestines themselves, but they could be pulling the pelvis and the abdomen in a certain way that it distorts the flow of the migrating motor complex um, and the, the flow of the intestines. And so as a result, you get this buildup of bacteria creating SIBO. Now, Having said that, you already had endometriosis, and we know that people with endometriosis have adhesions and, and tend to have SIBO. Um, so you may have already had a degree of SIBO beforehand or bacterial dysbiosis, right? Gut dysbiosis that was creating the belly, the endo belly and the bloating. And then either the SIBO worsened post-surgery, which is really common, or it's developed and it's worsened whatever you already had that was existing. Um, from what you've described, I can't, I don't know you, I can't, I can't diagnose you, I can't even legally diagnose anyone because I'm not a doctor. Um, but it sounds to me like the symptoms of SIBO. Um, and what we call, you know, you're saying it feels like endobelly SIBO. What we call the endobelly, as I mentioned earlier, is largely to do with the gut. So it can, you know, it can look like, oh, this is caused by the endo, but, you know, the surgeon's confident that the endo has been excised and um, obviously you don't have a uterus anymore. Um, so this could be being caused by something going on in your um, small intestine or in your large intestine, you know, it could be bacterial um, imbalance in your large intestine. And it can also be caused by adhesions. Um, now there is something else that it could be caused by, um, I want us, I mean, there's multiple things that could be caused by, but these are kind of like the likely scenarios. Um, I do have a podcast episode on like 10 root causes of bloating with endo, which you can listen to. Um, but before I go into the other cause that it might be, um, if we're, if I'm right, I think what you were given was rifaximin, which is the antibiotic that they use to SIBO one of the antibiotics that they use for SIBO. Um, but it is really, really unwise to treat SIBO if you don't know the type of SIBO you've got or how much SIBO you've got. Because the rifaximin tends to just treat the hydrogen SIBO. If you have methane type SIBO, you tend to need two antibiotics if you're focusing on antibiotics because there are two other types of treatment for SIBO. Um, so that's one thing. It might have not been enough on its own. The second thing is the dose might not have been enough. There are studies showing the dose that's needed for um, SIBO with rifaximin. Um, that I share, that is in my endobelly course. It's also in my interview with Dr. Seebecker, but it's also the doses are available on her website, SIBOinfo.com, um, and the research as well. Um, but Regardless of that, you need multiple rounds for SIBO. The minimum is about three rounds. On average, we're looking at three to six. It could be longer. I mean, I think I had eight rounds before I cleared my SIBO. Um, and even once you cleared it, there's a you know a really high chance of relapse. Um, and it can feel rough in the first couple of 
rounds of treatment, you might not think you're getting better. You might actually think you're getting worse because we have something called die off, which is when the SIBO is dying and you get an inflammatory response. So you might have done that rifaximin. Um, I think it was two weeks that they said, and you might have felt worse during that time. Um, and just being like, well, this isn't, this isn't working. Nothing's getting better. So, you know, two, like, well, three things. Was it the right dose? Secondly, you probably wouldn't start to feel better straight away if it's your first round. Um, and third, you need multiple rounds for it to be successful, not of rifaximin. You tend to need to rotate between different types of treatment so that SIBO doesn't get resistant. So those are things to consider with what they've done. Um, I would highly, highly recommend that you get a SIBO test. Um, my suggestion for you being in the US is that you get two tests. You get the SIBO Trio Smart. Wait, I'm saying that wrong. I can't remember. Trio, Trio Smart. It's called, the website is Trio Smart Breath. So the reason why I'm suggesting that is because that tests for hydrogen sulfide type SIBO. Um, and the body pain that you're getting, the joint pain that you're getting may be suggestive of hydrogen sulfide type SIBO. There are three types of SIBO. Um, methanogen overgrowth, which is actually in the small intestine and the large intestine, hydrogen and hydrogen sulfide. And the hydrogen sulfide, um, all of them can cause body pain, but the hydrogen sulfide is often very commonly associated with body pain. Um, so you could get the hydrogen sulfide test. Unfortunately, it's not available anywhere else in the world. However, um, I don't use it because I'm not based in America. I can't get it yet. Um, a lot of my colleagues are saying that there are, it's a very, very new test. It was released last year. Um, that there are some issues with it. So the results aren't always 100% reliable at the moment. The doctor who developed it is incredible, wonderful, leading researcher, but it just seems to be that we're so early on in with this test. So there's a little bit of research still to be done. Um, the other thing that I would suggest is that you get a lactulose free hour breath test. Um, and that is going to test for the hydrogen and the methane. The um, SIBO breath test, the, the hydrogen sulfide SIBO breath test will test for those two, but it's not as reliable in picking them up. Um, I can order the lactulose test for you, but I can also, um, if you go to SIBOinfo.com, you go to testing, Dr. Seebecker has some recommendations of where to order it from. Um, the hydrogen sulfide test, you're going to need a doctor's signature to get the order. So you'll even need to work with a doctor um, or um, I can put you in touch with one of my colleagues who can order it for you um, in America. Um, I highly recommend that you get tested because just doing a treatment without knowing how much you have or the type of SIBO that you have, the type of SIBO is going to change the type of treatment that you do. The amount of SIBO you have is going to change the amount of rounds that you need. So it's really important that you know the type of SIBO that you have. Um, now, going back to the causes, you mentioned this muscle pain, the joint tightness, 
Um, and then you've got the, you know, that could be related to hydrogen sulfide, but could also be related to, bear with me because it's not going to sound like it will be, to joint hypermobility or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which um, there are 13 types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. One of them is hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There is a connection between endometriosis, SIBO, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, joint hypermobility and another condition called muscle activation syndrome and interstitial cystitis actually they're not usually labeled all together there's usually a trio of SIBO interstitial cystitis and endometriosis and then SIBO muscle activation syndrome and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome um, but they actually all cross over and we're seeing more and more this association of endometriosis with EDS or joint hypermobility, and then these these other conditions, you know, around them. Um, and there is some research um, on this. I can't remember the stats off the top of my head about the links, but I've got a podcast episode on this if you want to learn more. I'm um, just look for the one on Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, but I actually went to see a cardiologist on um, Tuesday for. Um, basically heart attack symptoms that I've been having um and oh sorry POTS is another one associated with this which is dysautonomia type of um type of uh nervous system dysregulation um and the doctor confirmed to me everything that I have you know known from the research he was like most of the people that I see are young women with endometriosis interstitial cystitis, SIBO, and then joint hypermobility or Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and POTS. Um, and so that's the direction that he's sending me down, which is great because that's what I thought was happening. So I, I went to a doctor who knew about this because it's very hard to find a doctor who knows about this connection. But Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and I don't know if joint hypermobility, but I imagine it's probably similar, but Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, the hypermobile type, has a lifespan, which as we get older and as we move into sort of like our 30s and so on, we tend to kind of go the other way where we get a lot of muscle stiffness, a lot of joint stiffness and a joint pain and muscle pain and full body pain. It can sort of be misdiagnosed as fibromyalgia. You can get tested for arthritis. Um, and the thing is, the hypermobility doesn't have to be really really obvious if you had asked me as a child if I was hypermobile I would have said no but the hypermobility doesn't have to be very obvious and in fact you don't have to even fit like a um the criteria you only have to have like some joints hypermobile so there is something called the Biton score Rachel and it will get you to um see whether your thumb touches your um forearm it will see whether your finger can go to a 90 degree angle um I can't remember the angles but like how does your elbow bend does it kind of go too far back do your knees bend slightly backwards um so you can get the bite and score if you go to um let me just find the name of the charity ellisdanos.com um I'm 100% sure they have the Biton score there. Now, you need a doctor to do this on you. Um, hopefully, the rheumatologist that you're going to be seeing is going to be a, an Ehlers-Danlos syndrome kind of specialised or at least aware 
doctor um but a rheumatologist is who you would be diagnosed with for eds or joint hypermobility so it's actually a great thing that you're going in that direction but unfortunately some of them just aren't as clued up on eds um as others and eds often goes misdiagnosed or undiagnosed until someone is in their 30s or not diagnosed at all um so i actually think this is a really good idea that you're seeing a rheumatologist but I do think that if you do have something going on with EDS or joint hypermobility, that it can be related to your gut. Um, so, you know, I know your doctor said that they don't think it is, but actually people with EDS and joint hypermobility do have gastro problems because EDS is a condition that affects the collagen soft tissue of the body. That includes your intestines. So people can get um, really uh, floppy intestines. Um, it's called droopy bowels. And so their intestines don't work properly. They can get like sluggish intestines. Um, the migrating motor complex um, is slowed. Peristalsis, which is that like, you know, squeezy sensation that moves food and stools through, that can all be slowed. So in the end, um, you get a lot of IBS symptoms and people with EDS and joint hypermobility tend to also get SIBO. Um, and they often have very difficult time clearing it and they tend to be chronic. Um, so I do think even if you don't have SIBO, this could be affecting your gut. Um, there's also, you can get accelerated. I think it's called just fast stomach emptying so your food is moving through too quickly so that might be causing like um you know this gas and this like bloating and things like that so i do think that this is this could be related um also i don't know enough about the other types of eds but i do know that some types of eds affect the tissue the tissue of the eyes so that could potentially explain um Sorry, I'm just seeing someone. Hmm. Um, hopefully explains, um, that could potentially explain the eye issue. Um, so that's where I would say, you know, look, in, look into. Um, just to help with your gas and bloating in the meantime, you could listen to my episode called Symptom Management Supplements for the Endo Belly. Um, there are a couple that can help with the gas and the bloating. Um, I would also look into using some of ego massage at home um, to support that bloating and distension um, and get assessed for adhesions because they could be really contributing to this bloating and potential SIBO. Um, so go and see a visceral manipulation therapist or an abdominal massage therapist who is versed in adhesions and can feel for them and can actually work on them. Um, so, um, Rachel, that's your question. And then the question, your question is, what treatment do you recommend for SIBO? So, um, depends on the type of SIBO that you have. There are three main treatment options for SIBO. The elemental diet, why have I got four fingers up? The elemental diet, um, antibiotics and antimicrobial herbs the elemental diet is not a diet per se it's it's not like a food diet 
it is a medical treatment um, where you drink a liquid that is made up of amino acids, fat and glucose and vitamins and minerals. And that's all you're drinking for two to three weeks. And what happens is because the food is in its simplest form, um, it's absorbed immediately by the small intestine and the SIBO doesn't have a chance to eat it. And so um, SIBO starves. Um, that is one form of treatment. It is very, very effective. It's 85% effective for SIBO. And it can reduce the um, SIBO levels by 70 parts per million on average, but it can even be more. So if you, for people who don't know, when you do a SIBO test, it's going to be measured in something called parts per million. So you might have 50 parts per million, you might have 200 parts per million. Um, so that's why it's so important to know how much SIBO you have, because when you do a, when you're trying to choose your treatment, you're like, oh, how many, how many treatment rounds do I need? Okay, I have 150 um, parts per million. So I can, you know, I reasonably assume that an elemental diet plus, you know, antimicrobials and antibiotics, three rounds might do it. Now, I will say, disclaimer, most people need a minimum of three rounds, unless you're, you know, the elemental diet might kick it out of the park. The elemental diet literally might get it in one, um, or you might need another round on top. It depends how successful it is for you. Then you've got the antibiotics. Um, so the key one for hydrogen um, is rifaximin. Um, then with methane or methane with hydrogen, uh, you're looking at rifaximin with metronidazole or rifaximin and neomycin. Um, rifaximin has also been kind of reported to clear hydrogen sulfide SIBO as well, um, but it seems to be a bit hit or miss, varies from practitioner to practitioner. And then you have antimicrobial herbs. Um, they are kind of like supplements. Um, so the, for hydrogen, uh, you're looking at a combination of two herbs, and that would be oregano, neem, um, and why am I forgetting? Oregano, neem, and berberine. <laughs> um, and you just combine two, like you combine those two of them, and you can just rotate through. So, say round one, you do oregano and neem, and then round two, you do berberine um, and Allison, so you can use Allison as well. Um, so there's different, you know, you can rotate through. They reduce on average by 30 parts per million. So does antibiotics by 30 parts per million. Um, I can't remember the success rate off the top of my head. It's something like 75% success rate or 70 or 80. It, it's in that region. Um, and then if you have methane, it's actually either Allison or Antrantil. Atrantil is a little bit hit or miss. Allison is a bit more reliable. Um, and then you combine either Allison or Antrantil with one of those hydrogen ones. So berberine, neem, or oregano. Now there are other antimicrobial herbs, but these are the ones that are the most reliable um, according to my training. And I've trained with two of the leading SIBO doctors. My training is largely based on Dr. Allison Seebeck my training, my practice is largely based on Alison Seebecker's 
um, training and her practice. And she is one of the world leading doctors and experts in SIBO. And so this is her, this is her approach from treating thousands and thousands of people. Um, and there are specific doses. I'm not going to share the doses right now because um, it's just kind of uh, irresponsible of me to do that because I don't want you to just go out and, and buy some stuff and start. There's there's a lot to prepare for with SIBO and you should do it with a practitioner um, or at least follow a practitioner course or book. Um, so those are your key treatments. You're probably gonna need several rounds so keep that in your mind. I do have an episode with Dr. Alison Seebecker on treating and I have several um, episodes on SIBO myself. And I have several articles on how to treat SIBO. Um, so I hope that, so I hope that helps. Um, I'm gonna have to answer your question quickly just because it wasn't pre-submitted and I've like spent time on the pre-submitted ones first. Um, and we're out of time because we're, we're actually at um, seven. It was just an hour long question, but I'm gonna try and give you like a, a kind of quick breakdown. So you've asked, I was recently diagnosed with endo. I'm waiting for a drainage surgery. I have endometriomas adhesions and I have no idea how to pronounce that. Um, Hematocell pinks? No idea how to pronounce that. Um, can you go more into the pros and cons of surgery and alternatives to surgery and pre-post surgery treatments? So um, that is, yeah, that's, that's quite a big question actually. I, I'm, we could do, I actually spend like a whole session with a client on pre-surgery treatment and post-surgery treatment as another session. Um, luckily, I actually have articles and podcasts on this, so I'll direct you to them. But in terms of the pros and cons, of course, with it depends on the type of endo that you have. What they're finding at the moment is that if you have an endometrioma, um, that surgery is helpful um obviously because you know they can they can continue to grow they can cause quite a lot of damage but if someone has superficial endometriosis where the endometriosis is not deep infiltrating and it's on the surface then surgery especially repeated surgery um can be damaging because it can actually sort of affect the nerves and and cause more pain in the long run because um the the surgery is is affecting the nerves and there are a lot of nerve endings in the superficial lesions um with deep infiltrating or endometriomas it seems to be more effective and more helpful there is an article that i'm going to send you right now that goes into this in more detail so you can kind of go to do some further reading all right, I'm just sending this to in a group. Anyone who wants to look it up um, after this call, it's called a common treatment for endometriosis could actually be making things worse. Um, and it's by The Guardian. Um, and they're interviewing some of the leading SIBO researchers and doctors. Um, the biggest issue that I have with the surgeries is I do think that um, at this stage, you know, it's the best option that we have for diagnosis. So the first surgery is usually required, but follow on surgeries um, will, you know, need to be considered 
as to what type of set, what type of endometriosis do you have? Is there going to be more damage occurring if you don't have the surgery? Um, but adhesions form from surgery and the adhesions can cause a significant amount of pain and significant problems like SIBO or like distorting the ovary or distorting the uterus and distorting the bladder and distorting the bowel. So I like to focus on preventative methods pre and post surgery that are going to reduce the chances of adhesions forming. Um, and there are supplements that can do that. And there are um, exercises and, and massages that you can do that help with that. And I, I literally have episodes dedicated to this. So if you go, it's not, it's not too far back maybe sometime last year, I literally have like episodes on surgery and adhesion formation. Um, so you can look into that. And also if you go to my podcast episode on supplements, um, I have suggestions for supplements to use before and after surgery as well. And that's going to help to accelerate the healing process, um, prevent adhesion formation or lower the chances and also to sort of discourage the formation of endometriosis lesions post-surgery. Um, with endometriomas specifically, um, NAC was shown to shrink or even completely eradicate endometriomas. Um, so in that podcast episode on supplements, um, I have the research on NAC um, and its effects on endometriomas. And I can't remember the number, but a large number, I think maybe more than 50% or, or something like half of people canceled their surgery because they didn't need it anymore um, or they fell pregnant or the, the pain completely resolved or the endometriomas were gone. So that's something to consider. Now, I'm not saying you don't need a surgery. I'm not a surgeon and I'm not a doctor. So that's not what I'm saying in any way. I'm just giving you some options to explore. Um, and any supplement that has been shown to help shrink or slow down or reduce the severity of endometriosis lesions could also be helpful with addressing the endometriomas as well. So for example, curcumin, quercetin, resveratrol, um, I'm trying to remember some of the others, NAC, they're all listed in the episode. So hopefully that gives you kind of some ideas of where to go. So I would really focus on the supplements, um, have a read of the um, Guardian article. Also look at my um, episodes on surgery and, and um, adhesions. And I also have on endometriosis net, a um, article on pre-surgery. And I think it includes post-surgery tips and management um, ways to basically get the most out of your surgery. So um, if you just Google my name, Jessica Duffin, endometriosis net, you'll find my column and just go, you know, go through. I don't think it was published too long ago, so you should find it quite easily. Um, I do have a column on endometriosis news. Uh, the company isn't around anymore, but the website is still up. You can still read all of my articles, but I can't remember if I wrote about surgery. I'm pretty sure I did, but I, I just can't remember. I was writing for them for years and 
I wrote hundreds of articles, so I can't really remember, but you can certainly search and, and see. And yeah, so I hope that's help, helpful. Um, I have stage four endo with some infiltration in the colon. If I reduce my pain through diet, do you think there's a chance for the endo to grow? So we have, I can't really guarantee that the endo is or isn't going to grow. Um, we do know that, you know, inflammatory chemicals, like natural chemicals, like prostaglandins in our body, histamine. Um, we do know that contributes to endometriosis growth. Um, we do know that there are some supplements that can lower endometriosis, um, lesion size and um, slow down growth rate and things like that. But we can't really guarantee with any of the methods that we have that the endo is going to stop growing. Um, there is nothing that can guarantee that at this stage in time, but by putting in these different support kind of options, then it can help to potentially not exasperate things or fuel the fire. Does that make sense? We can't guarantee it, but it's certainly going to be helpful. Does that make sense? Um, okay. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the challenge. I hope you've enjoyed the, um, the call today and I will send this tomorrow so you guys can uh, rewatch it if you need to. I will be holding a workshop, free workshop um, on different steps to manage the endo belly and creating a roadmap to manage in the endo belly. Um, and that is gonna be on May, let me just get the time date up. May 24th and May 26th. So I will send you guys the date and how to sign up if you want to join, that's free. So um, yeah, hopefully that will be helpful as well. So thank you for your time um, and I will see you guys soon. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, you can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world.